0: Is it still going to be called Facebook, Todd, by the time this podcast airs? (laughs) Bill, what's your prediction on the Facebook name change?
1: Oh, gosh, I'll go out on a limb and I'll say it doesn't change.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the name that they were going to come up with is Quagmire. (music) Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. Coming up this week, some surprising new trends in tech salaries, how the pandemic is changing the cloud market, and Seattle drivers provide the ultimate test for self-driving cars. Our guest commentator this week is Bill Richter. He is president and CEO of Cumulo, the cloud file storage and management company that became one of Seattle's unicorns last year with a valuation of $1.2 billion in its latest funding round. Bill was previously a venture partner at Madrona Venture Group and served before that as president of the Isilon Storage Division at EMC, among other roles. Bill, it's great to have you here.
1: Uh, delighted to be here, Todd and John, and, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation with old friends.
2: Well, Bill, I debated exactly how to describe Cumulo, and maybe we can get into that later on. Uh, but did, did I get close with cloud file storage and management? Is that in the ballpark? That's
1: right in the ballpark. We help organizations around the world store, manage, and understand massive sums of unstructured data. That's that's That, that loosely means data that does not fit in rows and columns. And that type of data is just proliferating the world. And I'm sure we'll talk at various angles around that, but it's a really exciting time in our space.
0: Well, yeah, we're going to be talking about data and how it interacts with autonomous driving later with stadiums, with, of course, our Seattle Kraken launching with the great NHL franchise here in Seattle this weekend. So this data intersects with uh, a lot of different organizations. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But Bill, I wanted to start out because we had a story on GeekWire this week that said the average tech worker in Seattle makes $158,000, a 4.6% increase from last year. You're hiring a lot of tech workers, a lot of engineers at Cumulo. When you see that figure, $158,000, is that on the mark of what you're paying right now? (laughs) High or low?
2: No pressure, Bill.
0: (laughs) Honestly, my average is, is higher than that. Um,
1: and that uh, we're a deep tech company, and so we hire the the world's best full stack engineers. And so every bit of the overall um, market forces that are in place for tech workers for us is is even more extreme. Um, and that that is a sign of the times and a nature of the market and and one of the business dynamics that that is certainly certainly we face.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure it's where you're spending a lot of your time as CEO of Cumulos, hiring and making sure you have great talent coming on board. I'm curious, based on what's happened over the last couple of years with the pandemic, how you've maybe changed your hiring tendencies. So, you know, you've seen companies like Zillow that have really moved to remote first, others that are going with maybe three days in the office. Where does Cumulo come down on this? And has the pandemic opened up opportunities for you to? diversify your hiring and go after new candidates that you maybe hadn't gone after in the past?
1: Yeah, just to frame this a little bit, I mean, I, I know a lot of my fellow CEOs complain about the, the cost of engineers and the scarcity of engineers, but it, you do have to stop and, and recognize that we're in a fortunate place in a fortunate time. Uh, the reason why the market uh, is increasing for engineers is because technology is taking over the world and we're lucky enough to be right at the center of that momentum. So on one hand, it's a challenge for the economics of a business. But for me, as a, as a person that likes to look a little wider, I mean, this is overall a good thing. The pandemic has definitely had uh, a lot of silver linings in terms of how we think about work. I mean, pre-pandemic Seattle was, our product development team was almost exclusively in Seattle. We had a, a smaller remote site in Vancouver, BC, and that was basically it. Um, and it was a very much at work interactive culture, and that served us well. Um, but we also hired a, a lot of adaptable people and they figured out how to do incredible work um, in a remote setting. And now we're looking at that as something of an advantage. It's like, hey, what can you what new flexibility can you offer employees to make their own lives work so that they're more attracted to working at your company for a longer period of time? And there's, there's a lot of that. So yes, we are far more open to remote locations. It really doesn't make that much of a difference where they are when they appear on their uh, video conferencing screen. Um, and that opens up a lot of like new talent pools. And then it opens up the opportunity for people that were previously living in Seattle that want to make a temporary or more than temporary uh, location change for whatever reason to continue to work at the company. And so we're definitely approaching things differently. and. And I think that that's the that's not a temporary state for us. That will be the future of the way we go as a company. And then in terms of like the working policies at, at, at the company, we actually did kind of a, I guess a mini Amazon before they did. We 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 kept wrestling with, well, what's the corporate policy? Is it four and one, and if or three and two in terms of days in the office and which days and. And then it just quickly occurred to us, you know, every function in the company has a completely different rhythm in terms of how they work, when they work. And we gathered the functional leaders and we we said, like, look, it's up to you to set your own kind of policies about um, what your expectations are for in the office. And guess what? We'll get to learn and see how that goes and adjust as we go. So uh, again, as tough as the pandemic has been, I see a lot of sort of opportunities and 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 the ability to kind of change behaviors that probably weren't all that productive in the past.
2: Well, it's interesting because John that study that you cited was from the job site hired and Seattle as you said saw its average tech worker salary rise 4.6% from last year to 158,000, but it was actually an anomaly if you look across the tech industry in the country, overall salaries dipped 1.1%. And that really raises an interesting question because part of that seems to be employers adjusting salaries or hiring folks in remote markets where they may not command as high of a salary. So I, I think that would be something that would be really good to get your perspective on, Bill.
1: You know, this was an interesting debate amongst the some CEOs that I talked to, and and the idea was, well, you know, maybe you lived in uh, Missouri, and to move you to Seattle, I recognize it's a higher cost market, so I paid you a premium to live here. Uh, and now in the remote world, you want to move back to Missouri, so should I take away your your premium? You know, the inner accountant in me might sort of say that that makes perfect sense. But if you just up level a bit, it's a global market for talent and. And in exchange for the talent and the impact that the individual provides the organization, they shall be compensated. And so all the sort of micro tuning of things like location and, and that sort of thing, that might work in the short run. I think in the long run, what we'll see is kind of a market clearing for compensation in return for talent.
0: I was really struck by that in the hired survey as well. In fact, it, it said the U.S. average for tech salaries dipped 1.1%, and that was in tied in part to remote work and expanding that candidate pool. Todd, what are your thoughts on whether you've seen that with other companies and what Bill was talking about, whether they are adjusting based on where folks are living? Their salaries.
2: What I've heard is very much a philosophy similar to what Bill is talking about overall. With your existing employees, if somebody moves, the risk to morale is so much that it's not worth the savings that you're going to get from docking their pay by a certain amount and i know there are exceptions to that i know facebook has discussed for example you know because they're making all the right moves lately if there's any company to follow the path of these days it's of course facebook but at any rate what i'm saying is i think over time though to bill's point when you're hiring in some of these markets you know as in the past he would have paid a peer premium for these folks and you're not necessarily going to have to pay that premium unless the the global market for talent is such that the engineer in Topeka is gonna be able to command a higher salary. But to me, it is interesting and I think notable that the overall salary dipped 1.1%. Because if you think about it, two, three years ago, the entire discussion about hiring was people cannot find engineers. And the issue was they could not find them in the region. And here you have a situation where that really is irrelevant. It's can you find engineers anywhere?
0: Well, Todd I was discussing this with you before but I and Bill I'd love your perspective on this but I think CEOs can which obviously you're a, a bean counter Bill you you know you <laughs> you uh, you can kind of kill two birds with one stone here if you can hire talent at a market cheaper than like a Seattle or San Francisco and you can pull from a di- more diverse candidate base, than you find in those cities. I mean, isn't that very attractive to you that you can both boost your diversity numbers and bring in a more diverse set of employees and cut your costs? Is that, are you looking at it that, uh, pragmatically, I guess my response
1: would be, and I think our philosophy at Cumulus just parse the, the concepts of talent and cost just for a second. Um, the opportunity to connect with talented people wherever they are and allow them to contribute to the company is huge, and the cost side of it um, is a market dynamic, right? So the market will decide in the long run what the pricing is um, for that talent. But that, like for us, I mean, you know, they call us tech companies. Really, we're just talent out aggregators. And so if you think about it like that, then you go, okay, talent's the most important thing. And like a mentor of mine. When debating these um, questions, she always says, "Bill, in the long run, the talent always decides, In the short run, the company thinks it's deciding um, what, what, whatever policy or compensation level or benefit or whatever." And you know that was kind of an eye opener for me when I heard her say that, and and I believe it. Um, but yeah, uh, John, to your point, Seattle isn't the most diverse market, and being able to go to other places and Kill two birds with one stone and be able to increase the, the diversity of our employee base in in every way, by remote work is huge. I mean, absolutely. And 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 when I say diversity, I mean I, I'd use the biggest definition of that word. I mean, just where people grew up, their cultures around the world, ethnicity, gender, all all of it together. Um, I think that's a that's a
0: huge opportunity. So, Bill, I was looking at the Cumulo job board before you hopped on here, and you've got a lot of openings. So I'll, I'll put the plug in for you so you don't have Thank to. Thank you.
2: John, were you looking? What, what, um, what yeah, were you looking I, at?
0: I'm, I'm changing my <laughs> career. I'm going to become a systems engineer. Uh, <laughs> just radical change. Bill, Bill you don't want him. I've never coded once in my life. You don't want him. Yeah. Well,
1: uh, <laughs> the coding test will be short, and that will leave time for drinks afterwards,
0: fellas. <laughs> That's right. Well, anyway, I was looking at your most technical positions, and you had about, it looked like you had about 20 open technical positions. And of those, from what my count, it looked like 14 were listed as Seattle. Now I'll put, is it Seattle in air quotes, or do you really want those people in Seattle?
1: In some ways it's air quotes. Here's the thing. We have a lot of gravity in Seattle and we have a strong network in Seattle. And so by and large, you know, a lot of Seattle people are attracted to coming to Cumulo. But if people interview for those jobs that happen to live somewhere else, that align with our culture and have the right skills to contribute to the company, I think our, our openness to bringing them on is extremely high.
2: This is a great discussion. It's amazing how much just the past 18 months have changed the entire dynamic in the job market. And of course, another area that's changed quite a bit is the cloud overall and the boom that we've seen in overall cloud usage. And I wanna talk a little bit more about that right after the break. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back.
1: Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected, accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included.
2: Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest this week is Bill Richter. He is the CEO of Cumulo. Bill, I want to give you a chance to defend yourself. John called you a bean counter earlier. I know that you were the CFO at Isilon Systems before you led their storage division, and but but I mean, you're a CEO now of a unicorn. I mean, bean counter is that really fair?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a recover I call myself sometimes a recovering accountant I did start I, I I started my first job out of school was an accountant and that didn't last for very long uh, because I had other sort of interests and aspirations but uh, anyone that works with me will know um, And any given day the inner accountant will come out but uh, that time for me is long past
2: so as you were saying at the beginning cumulo handles file storage data storage unstructured data across multiple clouds obviously you have interactions and work with all sorts of cloud vendors most notably i'm sure AWS and Azure here in our backyard bill can you give us a sense for the dynamic right now have you seen shifts in approaches by these companies do you see anybody really chipping away at the dominance of AWS like give us give us your state of the cloud from from where you sit
1: well First of all, if you stop and think about it, in my lifetime in technology, um, there's I, I think if you really zoomed out, you'd say the Internet and the public cloud are the two biggest um, disruptors that we've ever seen. And, and it'll be interesting to see what the third and fourth are. But, I mean, those are, those are have been enormous disruptors. And disruption is really good for emerging companies. Um, so we like that. Um, and what that's done is it's caused customers to rethink the way that they do things. And so the the part of the core thesis of, of Cumulo is to build software that runs both in public clouds and private clouds and across clouds and give customers choice, freedom, and flexibility about where to run their applications and where to manage their data. And by virtue of that, that means, yes, the cloud... Um, the clouds are partners of ours, so AWS and Azure and GCP are all Cumulo partners. And yes, that is each, those are tricky relationships, and they're different relationships. And as a company, we've gotten really good at learning how those organizations work, um, understanding how the, the underlying customer base um, thinks about using those services, and then to some extent, um, you know, one of our um, observations, and we do this because we poll and survey our customers, the majority of the enterprises are using at least two public clouds. And we don't expect, based on our our conversations with customers, for that to change. And so platforms like us that run across public clouds have our unique space and advantage in the world. And then, of course, the hyperscalers, as they're sometimes called, or the AWSs and Azures, are building great businesses, and um, it's win-win-win when we work with them. So the customer's happy because they're able to modernize their environment. Cumulo's happy because we sell software and services, and we run on top of a public cloud. That means we consume public cloud infrastructure, and the public cloud company wins. And so you know that win-win-wins are hard to find uh, in business, and that's that's been a, a, a dynamic that's helping us power the business.
2: Until AWS launches the service that competes directly with you and completely undercuts you,
1: they they do have their um, house brand services that um, are are in our space, and we are students of of what other companies like Snowflake and others have done. Where um, look, we are singularly focused on this one uh, problem set for customers, and we've spent nearly ten years working on it. Um, so by virtue of of a highly highly capable service and then also the ability to run across clouds that's one thing that aws or azure can't do you can't run an aws service on azure Um, and customers that are are looking for the ability to scale across or leverage both and in our case by the way run in private clouds as well Um, that's where we're able to significantly differentiate
0: So Bill, if you were just starting out, or let's say a a startup company came to you and was looking for advice, uh, how to get going with their service, let's say it's in a space where you operate a lot, like in health or entertainment, where it's really data rich, and they know they're going to have massive files that they're going to be dealing with, what would be the advice to them in terms of the platform they start with? Do you start with a singular platform and then expand to multi-cloud, or do you... Start multi cloud and and um, have multiple vendors plugged into your system.
1: Well, first of all, they should, without question, be using Cumulo from the <laughs> from day one. Um,
0: but that guarantees success, huh?
1: Um, you know, look, I I I mean, I think in, in general, um, especially in terms of startups and company building, focus is your friend. That's always the advice I give people. So, like, if you were starting from day one, I'd tell you pick your cloud. And get going there because if you're trying to straddle you know if you're if you're starting like say a sas company you're trying to figure out where to deploy it it's like you'd be crazy just to, to launch you know on multiple clouds at the same time the kind of flip side of that equ- equation is what if you are a fortune 50 company and you've been built up over multiple acquisitions and you've got you buy and, and divest companies all the time without question you're going to be using multiple clouds that's just definitional and so and, you know, our market's really largely the enterprise market. And so when we speak with them, that's already a, kind of a given. They, they, they were using Windows and Office, and then they started using Office 365. And next thing you know, they're using Azure services. And then in another corner of their business, they've got some developers building an internal application, and they started doing that on Amazon. And so, you know, they, they just organically are using multiple clouds. Um, at some point along the way, The organization might step back and realize, geez, my data is siloed, my applications are siloed, and the the ability to converge data sets and reason over them becomes important, and that's where Cumulo specifically will come into play.
2: Bill, in your usage patterns in in the volume by different sectors uh, represented among your customer base, are you able to get kind of a barometer of the economy? And if so, I'm curious to sort of what you've seen in terms of different sectors. John mentioned healthcare, entertainment. What have you seen in in the usage of Cumulo that might indicate strengths and weaknesses in the overall economy over the last eighteen months?
1: Well, I don't know that I can back into GDP based on our usage, but, but it, what I can definitely do is, is share the sectors that we just saw explode during the pandemic. Um, and I mean, I'll give you a few um, obvious examples or maybe not so obvious examples. Education, by and large, um, was a physical experience pre-pandemic, whether K-12 or higher ed. Overnight, education has gone digital. Completely, and and just like some of the trends that I mentioned, some of the opportunities people have seen in business to continue that, um, so has the uh, so have the education educational organizations out there, and so we saw our higher ed business and um, university and K through twelve just grow rapidly. There was a huge momentum between the intersection of healthcare and life sciences and biosciences. And I will tell you that that part of our business surged during the pandemic. And it was everything from organizations right here in Seattle, like the IHME, which is part of the University of Washington that is often referenced as the measure of different types of COVID trends, to the folks that are on the front lines of actually developing um, pandemic or or medications to, to solve the pandemic and techniques to prevent the next one. And so the amount of investment that's being poured into healthcare and life sciences is, is enormous. That's a trend that we don't expect to stop. And then we see that right in our business. We see the amount of data growth in that business just surge. So there, and, and then the last one I'd mentioned, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll give you three, is media and entertainment. Um, there are more people watching TV consuming more content than ever before. And so, all of the content developers, you, you know, they had to pause for a second and figure out how to continue production during the pandemic. And then, what they saw was the demand for more and more content continue to grow. And every major studio uses Cumulo to develop their content. Um, and so, that's been a that was a, a you know a positive or silver lining trend of the pandemic. And and we saw that almost overnight, almost overnight.
0: So how does that translate to your business? I know Todd mentioned this $1.2 billion valuation that's on money raised, but like what sort of revenue growth have you seen in the past year and where do you see that going? Do you think it will continue into future years?
1: Well, every single quarter that we've had has been a record um, since the pandemic began, which is great. I mean, we continue to grow and it's not... Perfectly linear and it's not perfectly distributed around the world. But the underlying trend that we're on, which is this explosion of unstructured data and being able to combine software in the public cloud to solve these problems for customers, feels like a very good place to be. And we just don't see any abatement of that anytime soon. Company building's hard. The legacy box vendors out there that um, were kind of fat and happy in this market for the last two or three decades are, are fierce competitors, but the, the the movement that's happening out there, the trends that are underlying the business have been really positive. I I won't give you our revenue number. We don't share that, but the growth has been really strong and we we continue to put up records.
0: Well, will we see it in an S1 uh, IPO filing this this year or early next, Bill? Because <laughs> you're just going to disclose it anyway. So just tell us now, right? <laughs> right,
1: right. Well, here's Here's what I'll tell you on that topic is, uh, um, look, we, we see a very bright future for Cumulo and everything that we've done over the last nine and a half years since this company has been founded is, is with the notion of building an independent, long-term, self-sustaining business. And yes, at some point along the way, that implies an IPO, but there's never been a mentality around this company for like a, a quick sale or a flip or, or anything like that. You know, we we just think that the market's big enough, and and we're unique enough um, to build like a household br- brand name in in our corner of IT, and and that's what brings us to work every single day here.
0: Yeah, we mentioned before that you were involved in Isilon, a company that was also in the storage business that went public uh, at a nice valuation, then sold at an even better valuation to EMC. I think it was just over two billion. Uh, so I guess you're approaching the the Isilon valuation here with Cumulo, even though you're privately held. I'm curious. I mean, the valuations right now just seem crazy. And there are more than 800 unicorns um, running around, you know, companies with more than a billion dollar valuation or more. Having lived through the past cycle when you were with Isilon, compare that time and what's happening with the market dynamics and valuations to what you're seeing today.
1: That's a great question. And by the way, I had a fellow um, CEO egg me on saying, Well, you're just a unicorn. You're not
0: a dragon. Yeah. What's the dragon? Remind, remind. I re- I've heard this. A dragon is a $10 billion
2: valuation. Oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah okay. It's like, so, it's like
0: in the social network, you know, a million, it was a million dollars isn't cool. What's, what's cool is a billion dollars or whatever the line is. I, yeah.
1: I guess so. You know, I'm, I mean, look, it, it, this has been, and, and this is what I was, getting to earlier when we were talking about the, you know, the rise in cost of talent, talent for tech. And, you know, that, that often gets kind of cast in a negative shadow. It's the underlying thing that's happening is very positive, which is just is taking over the world. And, you know, if you just stop and think about your daily life, whether it's a visit to the hospital um, the car you drive, the content you watch on TV, the Airbnb you stay at, the Uber you use—virtually every facet of our lives is now dominated by technology, um, and that's really what's driving those valuations. Which is exciting and daunting. How do I compare it to to the last decade? Um, look, you know, uh, one thing that people like me are cognizant of is that we've been on a twelve-year bull market. Um, that's just been on an unstoppable tear. There was a pandemic in the middle of that bull market, and um, you know I call that a blip, and and then it just continued on from there. Um, actually, we raised that that round that you referenced at 1.2 billion dollars evaluation in like May. Uh, you know, we were doing the work in May of 2020, right in the teeth of the pandemic. So investors continued to want to invest in growth companies, even even at the worst, most uncertain time during the pandemic. What I remember from that last decade of the Iceland experience is that was a rough decade. It started off with 9-11, um, there was a couple good years in there, and then there was the financial crisis. And so by the time we sold that last business to uh, EMC for two and a half billion, we were delighted with that valuation because it was, it was such a rocky time to operate in. And so engineers were less expensive, great, but I'll take more expensive engineers and the environment that we're living in today versus what we dealt with back then.
2: Speaking of data, there are two topics that we've yet to get to that I want to after the break. And that is of course, self-driving cars and hockey. So we'll do that. Okay, (laughs) good. We'll do that coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire.
0: This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold.
2: Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop and John Cook. Our guest commentator this week is Bill Richter, the CEO of Cumulo. Bill, you've been talking a little bit about the business and I know one of your customers is, is it the 49ers themselves or is it their stadium? Tell us that story, how that came to be.
1: Well, I mentioned earlier that Cumulo focuses on unstructured data, and unstructured data is data that doesn't fit in rows and columns. And so that could be videos, it could be images, it could be aerial maps, it could be genetic sequences. And and if you just stop and pause and think about the proliferation of video in our society, it is really jaw-dropping. Every single public space, um, the, the It is on video surveillance. Not every one of them, but most of them. Um, um, Local schools, community colleges, universities, airports, train stations, and yes, stadiums have, in some cases, thousands of video cameras. And it's not the grainy black and white image from the 7-Eleven camera of, of the past. It's high def. And not only that, not only are they, have the number of feeds grown, um, they don't just have humans watching those, they use things like AI and ML and layer that on top of the video imagery uh, to make real-time decisions. And those things might be, the most obvious one is just the physical security of the folks that are out there. Um, and then there's great things that you can do from a business perspective. You know, How great would it be to figure out how to plan your concession stand staffing based on real-time understanding of where people are in their seats and how many of them are actually in the stadium and, and how they're moving about. And so there's all sorts of things that we see organizations doing with video, and the uh, 49ers and Levi Stadium is one of many great customers in that space. Um, what's, what's nuanced there is there's so much data created out there in the world. Um, that's an example where that data doesn't nicely fit in the public cloud. It's it's it, There's too much of it, and the pipes are too, too thin to move it to the public cloud. So that's an organization that runs Cumulo software on-prem for good reasons. And the fact that we can run in both places is a huge advantage to them.
0: So they have their own data center within the stadium? Oh, absolutely. Interesting. So we're leading into this, of course, because we've got hockey fever here in Seattle. We've got the (laughs) Kraken starting Saturday night against uh, Vancouver, the launch of Climate Pledge Arena. Bill, have you been inside the arena yet?
1: I've yet to be inside, and I've yet to see a Kraken game, and Climate Pledge Arena is yet to be a customer, and I hope that the next time we speak, all three of those answers are different.
0: I will tease, since you haven't been inside the stadium yet, or the arena, I should say, that the GeekWire team got the opportunity to get the sneak peek at the media preview, and Kevin Lasota... And Kurt Schlosser on our team got inside. We have an amazing post with analysis of all the high-tech gadgetry in the stadium. Great interviews with Todd Humphrey, their uh, leader of the fan experience. Make sure you check out that awesome post. And I got to say, it looks even better than I imagined. I mean, this place looks awesome. Well, and it's hockey, for gosh sakes. I mean, that's exciting. It's hockey.
2: Is it really? Is it really? I need I, I yes. to get on board with
0: I, that. I'm getting into hockey. I've started watching.
2: Yeah. John, my one experience with hockey was marred by your altercation with the mascot for the Pittsburgh Penguins, whose name is escaping me. Oh, God.
0: Yeah. Somebody's going to email us.
2: Uh uh. uh Oh my God. He was like a curse word. He got really mad at me. I'm I'm obviously being a little dramatic here, but when we spent time in Pittsburgh, we got to go to the Pittsburgh Penguins games and it it was fun. Although I have to say hockey is to me like a foreign language of sports right now. So I'm, despite the fact that I'm wearing a a Kraken hat as we even do this, I I frankly, I just like the logo and I'm going to have to be convinced that the team is worthy of my time. So Todd,
0: I looked it up. Google never lies. Iceberg.
2: Oh, that's right. right. I can't remember. What did you do to piss him off?
0: I really wanted a photo with mascot, with the mascot (laughs) to mark my time in Pittsburgh. And I was pushing little kids out of the way to get it. And he got (laughs) mad at me.
2: Are you a hockey fan,
0: Bill?
1: Uh, A light fan. You know, what I'll tell you about uh, my view on hockey is it's one of the sports where being there in person is like. A night and day experience over watching it on television. Just, just
2: one person's opinion,
1: and not all sports are like that. Some sports are quite great to watch at home, but hockey is exciting to be in in the stadium.
2: Yeah, Bill, how's your driving?
0: How's my drive? It's okay. On the golf course or on the streets? (laughs) Which one are you talking
2: about, Todd?
1: Sometimes, sometimes I could be a little heavy on the pedal, but I I try to always be safe.
2: Yeah, it's funny because. I got to cover a story this week about Zooks, the self driving car company. They're actually working on a robo taxi uh, for Amazon. They were acquired by Amazon last year for a reported, you know, roughly a billion dollars. They announced they're going to be coming to Seattle. And they said that they're attracted to this place for testing their autonomous vehicle technology because of not only the rain, but because of our. Unique and different style of driving, which to me sounded much like a euphemism for. I was trying to figure out how to describe Seattle drivers, and I, I came up with kind of this weird combination of distracted, passive aggressive, yet assertive. I, I, I just this weird. How would you describe Seattle drivers?
1: Well, what I, I'd share is an anecdote, which is that I grew up in Los Angeles. And I moved to Seattle when I was about 20 years old, and I had to relearn how to drive um, to fit the Seattle driving methodology almost immediately. Um, And I would call it, uh, yes, much more passive, maybe passive aggressive, but overall much more passive, much more courteous. It's somewhat rare to hear somebody use the horn in Seattle versus other cities where that's just kind of a frequent communication method. Um, so yes, I had to relearn how to drive when I came here.
0: Todd, it's really funny with your story uh, that you wrote about Zoox and why they were coming to Seattle, because remember, and I'll circle back here, when we were in Pittsburgh for our GeekWire HQ2 experiment, one of the things we did there was we, and Pittsburgh is a center of autonomous driving because of the AI and robotics yes. technology from Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon. Mellon. Yeah. So, so there's a massive investment in a lot of the autonomous uh, driving companies and auto manufacturers have set up shop there, and they chose Pittsburgh because of its unique driving characteristics: a lot of hills, rivers, bridges, potholes. ice, snow, potholes, summer hot, extreme temperatures. It's it's all over the map. So it's interesting that a lot of those car companies and autonomous driving uh, vehicle companies were setting up Pittsburgh largely for the geography, but they come here for the culture. I am curious, I mean, I will tie this back into Cumulo here and data, because at the end of the day, these cars are mini computers generating massive amounts of imagery as they are sensing everything around them. And so, Bill, I'm curious how that data gets uh, ingested, processed. And then stored and then manipulated maybe with AI, ML to like figure out that it can drive through a pothole in a better way than it did previously. What Any insights into how these systems work? I've spent a ton of time in this space at Cumulo and we
1: have a lot of customers that are growing in autonomous driving. There's actually two sides of it. There's the, the creation and the manufacture of the smart components and the training of those components. So, if you just took an easy example, just an automated braking system that could detect something in front of the vehicle and make and help the car make a decision to brake on its own without human intervention. To be able to do that, to train that component takes thousands of hours of LIDAR, radar, imagery information all coming in uh, to a repository. And then, yes, using heavy AI and ML and, and training models to help that component make the right decision. If you think about it, just again, an easy example, that car has to know the difference between like a plastic grocery store bag blowing in the wind in front of a vehicle and a child. And if it slams on the brakes, it has to know when to slam on the brakes. And, and human lives can literally be at stake when it comes to this. And that is all made possible by enormous amounts of unstructured data. The the other side of it is the vehicle itself becomes a, a little computer at the edge. They're edge computers. And more and more of our vehicles are sending constant telemetry to central repositories to help it continue to improve those models. That's part of the promise of organizations like Tesla and others where the car, yes, it's autonomous driving or actively supported driving or whatever they call it now. But the promise is that every software release, the vehicle gets a little bit better at that. And that's by virtue of some of the telemetry that comes from the vehicles. Cumulo doesn't run on a car yet, but all of that has to make its way to a central repository. When you can't reason over large sums of data unless it's consolidated.
0: And that's where we come in. Are you bullish about the promise of autonomous vehicles on our roads? I think in the long run,
1: it would it would be the exception that a human would be responsible for driving a car. Really, if you stop and think about it, it really doesn't make much sense, right? Um, we only have two eyes. A vehicle can have n number. They could have fifty. It could have fifty eyes. There's limits to our reaction times. Uh, our individual reaction times are highly variable compared to what a machine could do. Um and so I think in the long run most cars will for sure drive themselves and humans will just be passengers.
0: I think the operative phrase there is long run and long term. Yep. I am still. I, I think I was. I've been on this podcast declaring how uh neg in part because of my experience in Pittsburgh when we rode in the autonomous vehicle and it was terrifying. They did. You could tell it was like it was not dialed at all. And um. So I'm still, I think there's so long, such a long way to go before we get there. I don't even know. I don't think we'll see it in my lifetime that it's mainstream.
1: Mm, maybe I'm a, a bit more bullish than you are, or maybe I think I'm going to live longer than you. could
0: be that too. <laughs> that's probably true. Um, Possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm living a hard life here, Bill.
1: Um, but look, it, uh, the computer science problem that's trying to be solved the multifaceted problem is, is enormous. And, and I do agree with you that we're still at the very early stages of it. I happen to own a Tesla. And when I drive on the freeway, I use it's autonomous driving that works pretty well. But like on city streets and complex situations, you know, you're definitely you have your hands on the wheel. Um, but, that, but that is solvable. That is for sure solvable.
0: I'm going to push back on you, Bill. Because I don't think it's a computer. I think the computer science part of this problem is the easy part. That's the easy part. The hard part is you're dealing with all these different government agencies that are in charge in charge of the roads and regulations that I mean, I see that drop. Draw- I mean, we can't even get basic a basic road or bridge built in our country, you know, let alone we're gonna put vehicles on the streets that are driven by computers. I mean, that's a whole nother layer of regulation that I just do not see happening at all.
1: That has to be solved, no question, and it is complex. Maybe my perspective is a little different on, on why I'm so optimistic about this space, and it, part of it, I guess, I'm biased because it's a driver of of business for Cumulo. But you know, if you stop and think about what we've accepted um, as the status quo. Um, People of varying abilities, of varying emotional states, of various levels of intoxication, of distraction—we allowed to get in vehicles and move around. If you thought about the opportunity to eliminate some of those variables, um, and yes, solve the kind of regulatory challenges, we might be in a in a much better future. You know, the number of automotive-related deaths every year in this country is is high and growing. And, um, you know, that's something that is meaningful, I mean, to, to solve that problem.
2: John, I think it's notable that you were in that Uber self-driving car in Pittsburgh prior to the accident that led to sort of the, the real slowdown of their development of self-driving cars. And actually, I think their divestiture of, of that business. I do want to point out to your point on regulation, the Seattle Times did some good follow-up reporting on this. They found out that Zooks basically just had to fill out one sheet of paper and submit it to the city of Seattle uh testing that they had enough insurance to cover whatever calamities their vehicles might cause. And then just just one last point. When you look at the long-term evolution of AI, I think people are going to look back on this moment in Seattle as the big thing that really broke the trajectory of self-driving cars. It's going to be the moment when all of the autonomous vehicles started driving in the left lane and refusing to zip or merge.
0: Oh I, <laughs> I thought you were going to use the example of they either four Autonomous vehicles that get to a stop sign
2: and no one <laughs> mo- no one moves. That too. That too. Paral- yes. Paralyzed.
0: <laughs> yes. Just locks, gridlock.
2: Yeah. Oh, uh, well, all right. I've never done that for the record. Never, ever.
1: <laughs> Definitely a, a lot of complexity there, but this is a convergence story. The convergence of smart, inexpensive components, the convergence of, uh, of the lowering of cost of compute and the compaction of compute. The ascendance of AI and ML, all kind of coming together to solve a problem, and it it just happens to have four tires. It's it's exciting stuff.
2: Well, Bill Richter, the CEO of Cumulo. In my book, Bill, you are no mere bean counter. We're really grateful. Ah. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Thank you.
1: Always a pleasure, uh, John and Todd. And I'm just a huge fan of GeekWire from the day you founded it, and I love what you do for our community.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Good seeing you.
2: Thanks, everybody out there for listening. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of tech, science, business, and more, go to geekwire.com. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. I'm GeekWire co-founder, Todd Bishop.
0: And I'm GeekWire co-founder, John Cook.
2: We'll talk to you next week on GeekWire.